As you gradually uh, take your seats back, let me just preface this by saying I've written about the subject of biblical prophecy in terms of the uh, New Testament fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecy uh, in my book, Understanding Jesus, uh, which also goes into some of the philosophical questions that uh, might be raised by the whole uh, issue of prophecy and God having foreknowledge uh, and so on. Uh, but today, uh, since we're looking at the Old Testament, I thought I'd try and sort of do two birds with one stone, if I can, and look at prophecy, history, and the reliability of the Old Testament uh, in terms of particularly the fates of uh, Jerusalem and of the city of Tyre uh, at a particular historical period. And uh, depending on time, we'll look at one or two of those. I'll see how the clock uh, goes with us. It was uh, the philosopher of science Karl Popper uh, who talked uh, about the importance of your uh, hypotheses in science uh, being uh, confirmed. Confirmations, he said, should count only if they're a result of a risky prediction. Uh, If uh, you make a prediction and then you go out and your experiment verifies that, well, then that is evidence for your uh, hypothesis, but only, says Popper, if your prediction is a risky one. Um, If I say to you, ooh, later on this year you will meet a tall, dark stranger, and then later on this year you meet a tall, dark stranger, and you think to yourself, Pete Williams said that that would happen, he's a prophet, Uh, then Karl Popper would probably nudge you in the ribs and say, hang on a minute, that wasn't a very risky prediction. So that the fact that it is verified in your experience doesn't really uh, show uh, anything uh, about the uh, validity of my uh, prophetic status, as it were. Tuning this up a little bit more, the Christian philosopher Tom Morris notes that a single successful prediction, even if it's a risky one, uh, about a remote or an unlikely, a risky event, uh, can be just a lucky guess, of course, a, a lucky shot in the dark that just happens to hit its target. But the more successful predictions of that sort a person is able to make, the more risky predictions, and the more risky those predictions are, uh, the less likely we are to be fully satisfied with just describing it all to luck. There will come a stage when the number and the specificity and the riskiness of the predictions uh, sort of crosses over a threshold at which it's at all plausible to say, oh, what a lucky guess. And you have to appeal to some other Explanation. Now, with that in background, let's start looking at some history. Uh, saving Jerusalem from uh, Sennacherib, Carib. And I've got some pictures from the British Museum. I was lucky enough recently to go on. You can, you can do guided tours of the Bible in uh, the British Museum, which I uh, encourage you to go on uh, if you ever get the opportunity to do so. And this is a picture of uh, Sennacherib Carib in his uh, wonderful chariot here and some of his bodyguards uh, from Um, the 8th century BC. When uh, Sargon II, who was king of Assyria, died in 705 BC, various subject states uh, saw an opportunity to throw off their subservience. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, uh, ceased to pay the tribute imposed on his father, and he entered into a a league uh, with Egypt. And in 703 BC, King Sennacherib, who was Sargon's son and successor, uh, began a series of uh, campaigns to quash these uh, rebellious states, as it were. And Hezekiah, 
of course, expected the Egyptians to rush to his aid. They didn't. Oh, dear. Uh, archaeologist uh, Amihai Mazar calls the tensions between Assyria and Judah one of the best documented events in the Iron Age. So you can place it along with those arrows that were going along earlier. We're told in 2 Kings 18, traditionally dated to around about 560 to 539 BC, that Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. If you read the Old Testament, you'll discover this is very rare for kings in the Old Testament. <laughs> he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. And here we have a, a seal, an impression from a seal uh, bearing the legend uh, belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. This is Hezekiah's royal seal. So in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, this is two kings, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And here again we have a picture from a, a panel reliefs from a, another a palace uh, showing uh, the army of Sennacherib attacking Lachish, which we had a picture of the tell of uh, earlier. And I've, I've got some nice pictures because this gives you uh, some idea of the ferocity of what he was facing, you know, at this stage, uh, Hezekiah, uh, just a little uh, kingdom, he's a little guy, that's why he's entering into these leagues with bigger folks like Egypt to try and protect himself, and they're not coming to his rescue, and he's got the mighty war machine of one of the greatest empires the world have ever known, bearing down upon him, and Lachish was one of the chief cities of, uh, of Judah, uh, a very well fortified place, and in 701 BC it was captured by Sennacherib. I've got some, uh, if this works, video footage here, uh, looking at the, uh, the battering rams of the siege works. These are the Assyri uh, soldiers going up the, the siege ramp that they built uh, against the city. And you can see them there with their, their bows and arrows and uh, their various helmets and so on, going up, uh, up their siege ramp into the city. You can see some of their uh, um, support structures here. And carts and the animals carrying food and so on. I think we've got some fleeing civilians at one stage. As we come round these panels, you can see them in the in the British Museum. Syrian children looking on as captives from the city. Maybe officials here are being flayed by these guys. This is a bit of a clearer picture. The Syrians flaying some of the uh, victims of their assault to punish them for holding out against them. This is a, a nasty, a brutal and powerful enemy who is systematically destroying uh, the cities under Hezekiah's rule. And we can see here, just at the, the end of the panels, Jews queuing to bow before King Sennacherib. So here's another picture. Unfortunately, later on in history, his visage is being uh, destroyed at some stage by... So Hezekiah, knowing this was coming, does all that he can to prepare Jerusalem uh, to try and stave off the inevitable, in a sense. Um, this is a picture of what's known as Hezekiah's Wall. Uh, I've talked about in 2 Chronicles and various places. Uh, 2 Chronicles 32 says Hezekiah fortified the broken down segments of Jerusalem's wall, uh, building towers, adding strength to the existing structures. 
that stones from the wall were taken from Jerusalem's homes in order to build up the walls. That's mentioned in Isaiah 22, and that was found in the archaeology here. This wall was reinforced to over 20 feet thick and 27 feet high. This is a a big wall, because you know what's coming to try and withstand the invasion force, to make them have to build those siege ramps as high as possible and so on. This is the, also an outside wall as described in 2 Chronicles 32. Here's another uh, top-down view of Hezekiah's wall. Hezekiah's famous tunnel. Um, he diverted the spring that was feeding the agriculture just outside of Jerusalem, blocked up uh, uh, the, uh, the springs and diverted the spring to inside the walls of Jerusalem to deprive uh, Sennacherib's army of water when they got there. So, like, we're not going to give our enemies the water. We want the water if we're going to be under siege. And he had this sort of 500-odd foot tunnel built to divert the water uh, through the bedrock under Jerusalem into inside Jerusalem with two teams of, of tunnelers uh, uh, starting at each end, working their way towards each other without GPS. How on earth they managed to do it, but they met in the middle and there's even a commemorative inscription in the tunnel talking about the, their joys. The two teams uh, met each other in the middle. Uh, analysis the ancient writing, carbon-14 dating of the plant life disrupted by the tunnel, uranium-thorium dating, whatever that is, of the uh, stalactites and stalagmites that grew after completion of the tunnel all support a uh, date around 700 BC for this tunnel system. As I mentioned in 2 Kings 20 and 2 Chronicles 32. And then Isaiah 37 records that Sennacherib received a report that uh, Tehaka, the king of Cush, was marching out to fight against him. And when he heard it, he sent messages to Hezekiah with this word, say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Basically saying, look, oh, grief. I'm on this campaign. I've suddenly heard this news about this other king trying to attack my territory whilst I'm away. I'm, I'm off to go and deal with him, but I'll be back. I'll be back, you know. Um, and for a long time, this was a bit of a puzzle because we had no idea who this uh, ting, uh, King Tehaka of Kush was. But now again, in the British Museum, uh, you can see uh, this wonderful statue of uh, King Tehaka under the protection of his god Amun. And that is the king mentioned uh, in Isaiah. And then, Sennacherib defeats that king and he's, he's coming back to finish off the job. Isaiah 37, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city, Jerusalem, or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp up against it like at Lachish. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Now, you see that in context, this is a risky prediction. Okay? Isaiah 37 continues, The angel of the Lord went out and put to death, and again, interesting biblical numbers, you have to read very carefully, and my reading leads me to think that the translation here is much better, much more likely to be 5,180 men than 185,000 men. Uh, the angel of the Lord put to death 5,180 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there and never returned, says Isaiah. 2 Chronicles 32, King Hezekiah 
And the prophet Isaiah cried out in prayer to heaven about the coming invasion. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the commanders and officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And indeed, Sennacherib's death is prophesied by Isaiah, as recorded in the book of 2 Kings 19.6. I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down by the sword. Uh, 2 Kings, probably, traditionally, again, written about 560 to 539 BC. And we've got multiple independent witness about the death of Sennacherib. Uh, two of them are probably not independent because you'll see that the wording here in 2 Kings and in Isaiah are identical. So one's probably copying from the other. But the 2 Chronicles wording is different. Uh, so it seems we have independent wording uh, about uh, withdrawing to his land in disgrace. And then it's recorded here uh, when he went into the temple of his God, some of his sons, his own flesh and blood, cut him down with the sword. And similar reports in 2 Kings and Isaiah 37. His sons who are named there I'm not even trying to pronounce those. Uh, Ad- Adramalek and Sherazar killed him with the sword and escaped to the land of Arat. And uh, Urshadon, his son, succeeded him as king. So, setting aside any metaphysical questions about prophecy and so on, setting aside the question of is this genuine prophecy or what sometimes by sceptics called historicised prophecy, uh, i.e., um, lies, or uh, no, that's putting it too. No, you know, did they know that this was talking about events that had already happened, but in a sort of, I don't know, uh, for for knowing kind of a way? It's just a literary device, or was it genuine? Set aside those kind of questions. What we do have from Isaiah to Kings to Chronicles, they are jointly claiming that historically, Sennacherib would not or did not take Jerusalem; that he would not, did not raise any siege ramp against Jerusalem, that the Assyrian army was suddenly rendered impotent without human intervention, that Sennacherib returned to Nineveh, probably in disgrace, and didn't return to finish the job, and that Sennacherib would be or was cut down in his own country by the sword. Now, if the Bible is correct about that historical information, it's unlikely that it's correct by lucky guess. If you just assign uh, some very plausible probability statistics to this and do a quick back-of-the-envelope calculation, uh, you can say, well, it's probably, you know, uh, one in 10 to the 12, one in a trillion-ish odds that anyone would get those predictions right just by having a lucky guess. Now, you might say, well, it was because they wrote after the events happened, so they knew about it. Or you might say, they wrote before the events happened, and that's because this is genuine prophecy. But the information is accurate, and it's unlikely to be accurate by luck. The Andromeda Galaxy, to give you some context, is said to contain about 10 to the 12 stars. So that's a big number. (laughs) So now a of prism, which you can see in the British Museum recounts the Assyrian side of this. As for Hezekiah, the Judeite, who didn't submit to my yoke, 46 of his strong-walled cities I besieged and took them. Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city. I threw up earthworks against him, but actually, archaeologically, there's no siege ramps. This is just... walling off the roads and so on to stop people going in and in and out. 
The one coming out of the city gate, I turned back to his misery. His cities, which I had despoiled, I cut off from his land and gave them to various other vassal kings. There's an interesting sort of silence in the Assyrian record about what actually happened with Jerusalem that you were going to destroy and you went away and came back determined to finish off. And why are you bigging up the 46 cities and not the one really important city? It's one of those interesting bits of silence like the Egyptian record that Chris was talking about. This is uh, back to Lachish. You can see a picture here of the Assyrian uh, assault ramp Here's the assault ramp built up. There is no evidence that Snerokob laid siege to Jerusalem. There's no assault ramp, there's no arrows, there's no uh, slingshots, etc., all of which you can see uh, in the Lachish exhibition uh, from Lachish at the British Museum. Indeed, two centuries later, the Greek historian Herodotus, uh, writing about 484-425 BC, he writes about a massive destruction of Snerokob's army, as the, at the entrance to Egypt, on the way going into Egypt. And he depicts a plague of field mice that chewed up the Assyrians' leather bowstrings, quivers, and shield straps. And he attributes this sudden uh, destruction of the efficacy of the Assyrian army to divine intervention. Says it was because there was a lack of reverence for the gods. Uh, and many people have speculated that, that this is a sort of garbled later account of there being something strange, something thought at the time to be supernatural happening to wipe out the efficacy of Sennacherib's army in that general region, but that since he's writing several centuries later, Herodotus hasn't quite got the story as accurate as maybe the Bible does. In the 7th century Babylonian chronicles note that on the 20th day of the month of Tebetu, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, his son killed him in a rebellion. And the annals of Urshadon, the following king we had mentioned, he himself writes, My brothers forsook the gods and turned to their deeds of violence, plotting evil behind my back, committed unwarranted acts to gain the kingship. They slew Sennacherib, their father and then beat a hasty retreat. Hence, one of the younger sons, Urshadon, becomes king, mentioned in various places in the Bible. And here is a commemorative basalt stele depicting Urshadon worshipping his gods. So the extra-biblical evidence does show that Sennacherib did not take Jerusalem, that Sennacherib did not raise any siege ramp against Jerusalem, that the Assyrian army was suddenly rendered impotent without human intervention, that Sennacherib did return to Nineveh, probably in disgrace. Maybe that has something to do with why he was um, you know, overthrown by his sons. They thought that he was you know, politically weak enough and they could, because of this background of disgrace. Maybe, who knows? That's why I put it in brackets. And certainly that he didn't ever return to finish the job, despite having come twice, you know, gone out of his way, threatening to do it before. And indeed, that Sennacherib was cut down. We don't have extra-biblical record of whether it was by a sword or not, but he was cut down by his sons in his own country. Now, since this accuracy of historical knowledge is unlikely to be simply a lucky guess, <laughs> at odds of at least one in a trillion, uh, it is best explained by attributing rel relevant historical knowledge 
to the Old Testament authors. Of course, the question that leaves hanging is how did they come by that knowledge? According to the Old Testament itself, that knowledge comes from a mixture of prophetic foresight and historical record. Um, I'm not going to have time to go on and talk about Tyre, so I'm just going to skip to my last few slides and say this. I think that there is evidence that the Old Testament contains some accurate prophecies. That's the on-the-face-of-it evidence. <coughs> but what you really make of the, the fulfilled prophecy aspect of those Old Testament passages that include prophecy will depend largely upon what worldview you bring to the evidence, how likely you think prophecy you know, is possible even. But setting aside the question of prophecy, the evidence does clearly show that at least in, in this particular Old Testament uh, test case, as it were, the Old Testament does present us with some reliable accounts, there is some reliable knowledge there of what actually did happen in history as shown by the extra-biblical evidence, in this case particularly to Jerusalem in the 8th century BC. But if you say, including particularly the prophetic passages, okay, there's accurate knowledge of what actually did happen in history there, that the Bible is accurately recording the right events happening to the right town, in the right place, in the right period of history, in the right sequential order that it seems to be verified externally as reliable historical knowledge encoded there, wouldn't that indicate to you that the biblical author of that text also has reliable historical knowledge about who prophesied what when? <laughs> so there's, a, there's an inherent tension in trying to say, yes, there's accurate historical knowledge here in the biblical texts that involve prophecy, but they must have been written a lot later. There's an, in, in, there's an inherent problem with saying that. And whether you think that inherent evidential problem is big enough to overcome any scepticism that you have about the possibility or plausibility of divine revelation and foreknowledge in prophecy will depend upon the level of your scepticism about that in the first place. Thank you. Thank you very much. Could they have written the story later as you as an alternative explanation mm. and also have accurate historical knowledge? Right, okay. Could they have written it later but also have accurate historical knowledge? Of course they could have. The more germane question is 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 that a more plausible explanation of, of the match? Uh, between what the Bible says and what, what actually happened uh, occurring. Um, is it more plausible than potluck? Is it more plausible than divine revelation, etc.? Of course, the later after the event, you say it was written, in order to bring the writing closer to the fulfillment, to the event historically, than the further after the, the historical period of the, the prophecies and so on, you're talking about. So why would that author have accurate information about the, the earlier times that you can show there's accurate information about 
rather than just the accurate information about you know, his day. If he's writing about stuff that happened a long time ago, okay, that means there's a shorter distance between the, the supposed fulfilment and him, but then he also seems to get right accurate information about events at, at, the t- at the, that earlier time that he is supposedly retroactively writing the so-called prophecy into. But then, in the absence of modern you know, archaeology, records, etc., you know, this whole sort of process of, of history about the ancient past is a relatively modern phenomena, uh, in, in a sense. Then, again, there becomes a, a, a tension in saying, well, okay, that might explain how he has knowledge about the more recent event that he's retroactively sort of putting back into history, but then how did he get the knowledge about the history that he's retroactively putting the event into? <laughs> Right. Yeah. So you'd have, you'd have, but you'd have to enter into a discussion about you know well what what you, anyone can just hypothesise well maybe there was a you know there was a, a record from that time that happened to be accurate that he happened to have knowledge of that he then used in order to make up this retroactive fulfilled prophecy historicised kind of thing. Well, maybe, but what's the evidence that there actually was that, that account that he did have knowledge of it, that he did that, that anybody in that culture would historicise a prophecy anyway? Um, why people at the time would then accept that book as part of the Jewish canon of scripture if everyone's going, well, hang on a minute, this only you know, appeared in the last five years, and yet it's saying... You know, it's prophesied. Would people have gone, ah, I see, what a a marvellous postmodern literary device at the time? I think they were probably more likely to have gone, you liar, let's stone you. (laughs) You know? Uh, um, So, yeah, which is most historically kind of plausible in in all of those kind of fronts, really. Yeah. There must have been the factor of, as was said earlier that history is written by the winners that mm. for example if you had 100 cities with 100 prophets in and they all said that and 99 of those cities were destroyed and one survived you'd hear about the one prophecy right yes so um, again are, are there records of f- failed prophecy is the lack of records of failed prophecy because history is written by the winners the phrase was, history is generally written by the winners. I think one of the, one of the very interesting things about the biblical history is that a lot of it is written by the losers. So, I, I, yeah, the test case that I went into, in this case, it, you know, the, the, the Jews won the winning side in, in the sense that they, 46 of their major cities got destroyed by the Assyrians, but the capital was saved. Uh, they said then, and they attributed that to God. Of course, later on, um, we have the biblical, biblical records of the fall of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity, where the Jews were the losing side. Uh, and they accurately record the information uh, about those events uh, as well. Uh, so I think for me, the number of accurate representations of history happening to the Jews where they're on the losing side bolsters my, my confidence that the, the biblical records are not simply a sort of propagandist thing. This whole thing about, you know, don't, don't all cultures make up a story of where they come from? 
Yes, but you're unlikely in such a propagandist culture, therefore, to make up your backstory as a nation as being, yes, we're all descended from a bunch of slaves <laughs> who wandered around in the desert for 40 years because our God who liberated us from, from slavery had such a hard time with us because we were such a lot of leathernecks <laughs> uh, who uh, then we, had a, we came into the promised land and then um, we stuffed it up so badly that our kingdom divided into two and then we, we committed apostasy and God had to send us in, into exile in Babylon because we didn't hold to our covenant. And, and uh, our major king, our best king, of course, in our history was King David, uh, the wonderful poet and orator and uh, uh, statesman and so on who committed adultery and uh, murder de facto. Uh, uh, oh, you know, so... The biblical records of history stand out amongst things like the Assyrian records, the Egyptian records, and so on, as being very non-propagandist in their tenor. I think we'll have to call a halt from there. Thank you, Peter, very much.